Hello and welcome back to HIF Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you Kathy Reichs, interviewed live by broadcaster Mark Lawson at the 2022 Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Sit back, relax and enjoy an insightful and entertaining discussion with a master of the crime fiction genre. Good evening, everyone. Oh. Is there anybody else? Yeah. You... I always have this fear when it's the full. lights are so bright that you no, no, turn no. on the house lights and everybody will snuck away. It's absolutely full as it should be for a writer of this uh, quality and celebrity. Um, 25 years ago, I read Deja Dead, which was the first book in the Temperance Brennan um, series, which, as you see, gives us um, a neat anniversary. 25 years, and we also have another one that this is the um, Cold Cold Bones just out, is the 21st <coughs> book in the series. So we're going to talk, I've reread this for these purposes, I've read this one, so we'll talk about the uh, journey across the series, and then we'll take questions as normal. Um, if you want to ask how worried should we be about monkeypox to Dr. Reichs, then um, if you, you have to buy a book to ask that question. We, we, we won't do it um, in the tent. Uh, I should say that, um, so Cold Cold Bones, um, which looks back to some of the earlier books, which is something we'll talk about, uh, it begins with Temperance Brennan. Um, it isn't really a box follows, it happens very early on. She receives, by special delivery, um, an eye. Uh, and the eye is imprinted with uh, GPS coordinates, um, which lead her to an outdoor privy in which there is a severed head. And that's just the beginning. Um, I won't give um, uh, anything away beyond that. What, um, as I say, I've read Deja Den. What most people here will have read, and I think, and many of the others. What we won't have read is an earlier work of yours. Um, uh, quanti- uh, quantified comparison of frontal, frontal sinus patterns by means of computer tomography, um, which you wrote just before. It's one of your academic papers. Um, it was a big seller. Yeah. <laughs> but what, Nick, what interested me seriously was that um, we know that there's a kind of required academic style, which is quite dry and footnotes and so on. As you were moving towards becoming a fiction writer, were you fighting against that style, or were they two totally different things? I didn't really move towards being a fiction writer. I just did it. One day, I made full professor at the university, and I had just worked on a serial murder case, and I didn't want to do another textbook or scientific article. And I just thought it would be fun to write fiction, so I just sat down and decided I would write a book. Um, so certainly in this country, um, medical doctors, pathologists, if they write fiction, they often, if they're still practicing, have to use pseudonyms. They have to absolutely guarantee they don't um, use the recognizable details of any case. Um, are, are you bound by the same, not the pseudonym, but the, uh, the professional confidentiality? Well, there are ethical and legal um, constraints. I do use, I do draw on my work. Deja Dead is based on a serial murder case I worked on, 
but it's already out there. And I change all the names and the dates and the places and the details. But it's already out there. It's either in court records or it's been in the media. So I don't think I'm revealing anything new. And when I interviewed um, Scott Thiro, the um, uh, legal fiction writer, uh, on this very stage, he said that he'd found it increasingly hard to practice law because every time he sat down in court, the opposing attorney would say, Mr. Turo, a well-known um, practitioner of fiction, um, <laughs> has told you, told me members of the jury, one of his most remarkable stories so far. And it just became impossible. So I just, in terms of your professional practice, have there been any I, impact from the... I was testifying in a trial right after Deja Dead came out. And um, I was testifying for the, for the Crown. And we talked about, well, is this going to be an issue? Probably not. I get out, I get sworn in, I sit down, and under counsel's chair is a copy of Deja Dead. <laughs> and so I thought, oh boy, here we go. You know, Dr. Royks is this fiction. Or he never brought it up. He never mentioned it. And then after, the tri after my testimony, he just wanted me to sign the book. <laughs> <laughs> There's... Um there are two patterns in the titles, um, even with my limited um, schoolboy French. I was able to spot at the beginning that, first of all, the first three titles play up the French element of the setting. Um, Déjà Dead, Death du Jour, and Deadly Décision. Um, all five? Yeah, the first five. Oh! Oh, fate, oh Fatal, fatal boy, Voyage, voyage and Grand Secret. And then I, I gave up, I couldn't think of Then you gave up, but then um, <laughs> after that, all of them, apart from one which is published here uh, in hardback under a different title, Mortal Remains. Spider Bones, yeah. yeah they're all, um, they all have bones in the title, which coincide with the start of the, if you haven't seen it, I recommend it, the excellent Fox series, um, 2005 to 2017, it ran. Um, so, was that a deliberate branding decision? Yes. Yeah. Yes, my publisher very much encouraged me to put bones in the title, and then for the next however many books you do the math, I'm not certain. Um, they've all had bones in the title. Yeah, I think it's the next 16. Um, so, have you, do you have a, a, a notebook or a laptop file of bone, <laughs> phrases with bones in it? No, I don't. Usually I get <clears throat> somewhere in 10 chapters, whatever, and my editor wants a title, and he wants a synopsis of what the book is going to be about. So they can do marketing and cover art and, and whatever. And I just sit down. Sometimes the title comes to me right away. Sometimes I have to work at it. My family always has a contest for this. <laughs> My kids are a little odd. They're all grown now. But um, the winner one year, when I was doing the, uh, which one was it? Monday morning, I think, where bones are discovered in the basement of the pizza parlor. Morning start with a U. Yeah. Yes, Monday morning. But it was the pizza parlor opening with the discovery of the victims, and my daughter suggested bony pepperoni. <laughs> <laughs> it was hard not to go with that. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and Bones was one of the more unusual TV adaptations, because it isn't a direct um, uh, adaptation of the novels. Um, Temperance Brennan, there is a character called Temperance Bar Bar um, Brennan, but in one of my I mean, a fantastic joke, I think. She has written a best-selling series about Dr. Kathy Wright. That was, that was the idea of our showrunner, Hart Hansen, that yeah. they do a flip around, and the main character in the books that she writes on television is named Kathy Wright. Mm. And we did two or three episodes with that and had, had a lot of fun with that. 
that you've continued with the Bones branding beyond the series, because it just seems sensible by now. Yeah. 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 Um, I was very struck, you seem to me, one of the most impressive things about your writing to me is you're an unusually visual writer. There's a tremendous um, little moment very early on in um, Cold Cold Bones, uh, Temperance and her daughter are eating sandwiches as a break from her house move. And it's a tiny detail, but I was very struck by this. And she looks across and she sees on her daughter's hand that her daughter's hand is translucent with Creole mustard uh, stain. And then she takes a bite of her own sandwich and then she has to blot um, uh, red, uh, red wine stain, port wine, um, away from her. And there's so much of this in the book, um, you may not be aware of it, but um, she looks out of a car window and she sees clouds so dark and bloated they seem to belly scrape the earth. And I was very struck, and it's, it's there from early on, these visual, um, the, the exact angle of sun glinting off sunglasses and so on. And it struck me, which I think is a great training for a writer, um, that because you read bodies for a living, you have to be incredibly, unusually visually aware. You do have to notice details, yes. And I now, of course, as an objective scientist, you notice that autopsy or, you know, bones or whatever. But I also notice a lot more details now than I used to before I was a writer. Things that wouldn't be important in a forensic case, like, like what, like, like what does a fly sound like buzzing in the autopsy room? Or, you know, what is the smell? How can you break down the smell of whatever, I won't mention it, um, in the autopsy room. So I'm much more aware of those. I think my opening line, and this is one of my favorite opening lines of all, the opening line of this book is, it began with an eyeball. <laughs> now how can you not read a book? It begins, it began with an eyeball. Oh. <laughs> um, exactly so. But also because of the type of um, work that Temperance does and that you did, that, um, I think she says in the um, first, in, in Day of the Dead, I, I do the disinterments and the skeletal cases, skeletal cases. Um, you have to rely, in the way that doctors have to originally, on your senses, really. You, there are some tests, but there often aren't, because there's nothing. It's just what you can see you're relying on. Yeah, I think journalists, when they used to come to my lab, they cannot do so anymore, because everyone has to have their DNA on file in case uh, a case is compromised. But when they would come to my lab in Montreal, they would be, I think, very disappointed because anthropologists don't use a lot of specialized technology. We don't use gas chromatography or mass spectrometry, but you know, we use calipers to measure things and we use x-rays, of course, and we use um, scalpels to, you know, to clean down the bones and but it's, it's a lot of it, as you say, it's just observation. Uh, which is, as I say, I was suggesting, is, it, is a great thing for a writer to have because it's, it's where they overlap writing and um, forensic medicine. Well, I, I, it, it helps. Yeah. You've been trained to be an objective observer and you've been trained to be a logical writer of reports. Now, I think a mistake a lot of scientists or professors make when they decide to write fiction is they love their field. So they put way too much in. So you've got to um, you've got to keep, you've got to keep it brief. 
You've got to keep it jargon-free. We can't rely on all this special terminology we use to each other as, as experts. And you've got to keep it entertaining, which is not necessary for textbooks. So I think that's kind of the trifecta of how to put science into thrillers or, or any genre, actually. And also, which is the overlap with Bones, the TV series, um, jokes as well. I mean, part of the entertainment is that they can be, even with material as dark as this sometimes is, um, maggots falling out of bodies, scuttling across the floor and so on, of the morgue. Um, you've, had, you've had dinner, anyway. Um, it's, um, there, is, there are jokes, I mean, and, and human well, One of the reasons I went with, I was approached by a number of people to option my character for television. And they were just not quite the right fit. And then when I met with Hart Hansen, who's a Canadian, and uh, Barry Josephson, who came to be our executive producers, we were just really on the same page. We wanted a character-based show. We didn't want to just do another police procedural. And we wanted to put humor into the show. And that's, that's tough. And same thing with the books. Every show had violent death. Every book has violent death. So to do that, you re it's a balancing act. You really have to do it appropriately. And I like to do it in dialogue. Um, one of my favorite characters in the whole series is Skinny Slidell, Erskine Skinny Slidell. And she's working with Skinny in this book. And the dialogue between Tempe and Skinny is a wonderful place to put in humor. They, they kind of they coined a phrase for us when we went on air. They called us the first crimedy on television. <laughs> Crime and comedy. So. Um, having reread uh, Deja Dead and then read uh, Cold, Cold Bones in that order, I, it struck me that the, her voice, the narrative voice, there's been quite a significant change because in the first book, it's that literary conceit that the character is speaking to us, but sort of doesn't know we're there. Whereas certainly by this book, it's a conversation. She even says, um, she even says now, I know, I know, or you were right. Um, I, yeah. is, is that, that's, anyway, my theory, you can knock this down. My theory is that social media and digital <laughs> publishing, that there is now more of a conversation between writers and readers characters and readers. That, that could be. Um, I don't do a lot of social media. I respond to all of it. I have an assistant who helps me with Facebook and Instagram and whatever they all are. But um, I don't know. Just I feel that the character has become more comfortable with her reading audience, if that's even possible. So she does now tend more so to talk to them. She talks to herself all the time. Um, but I think she also does now and then acknowledge that the reader mm. is reading and part of the story. And were you conscious of doing that, or is that something that just happened? I think so. In the last, just recently, mm. like in the last two or three books, mm. I think, yeah. Yeah, that's very striking. Something that, um, as I say, we've got these two anniversaries, um, 25th of Deja Dead, 21st novel. I don't know if it's conscious, but there's a sort of acknowledgement that these are landmarks in that, um, Cole Colbones does deliberately look back to some of the earlier cases. I mean, less old cases rather than cold cases that it were coming to this. I thought it would be fun for my readers, my return readers. They could do two, two things as they read the book, because yes, you're absolutely right. This book um, goes back to earlier cases in her career. 
what happens is when she discovers this eyeball, um, and there's coordinates, and then she goes out to this Benedictine monastery, she discovers the severed head, then her boss sends her out on a case to collect a mummified body hanging from a tree in a state park. Um, and I've had cases like that. So it's a, an apparent suicide. Apparently unrelated, just random cases. But some little voice in her head is telling her, uh-uh, these are linked. There's something going on. And eventually she recognizes that someone is, there's a copycat killer. Someone is mimicking her old cases. So I thought it would be fun for my return readers, not only to treat their thrillers, so what do you do? You try to figure out who done it, what's the answer to the puzzle before the author tells you. But in this one, they could also try to figure out, well, which of these earlier books in the series is she, am I going back and drawing from? So that's another fun puzzle in there for my return Absolutely. readers. And I thought I would also tell new readers, first time readers, you know, what the series is like, what it's all about. Also, as your publishers may be very pleased, it might encourage new readers to go back and read the other 20. That's it, if they mm. figure out which one I'm drawing about. Yeah. So. And you, um, in the acknowledgments at the end, you say Melissa, Melissa Fish checked zillions of facts and dug scores of details from earlier temperance Brennan stories. I was interested in that because I wondered how good your memory is for the books, but you have to... It's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> I mean, I wrote that book, I started Deja Dead 27 years yeah. ago, and then it came out 25 years ago, so I don't remember a lot of details, but thriller readers, you all know this, thriller readers are very savvy, and if you get something wrong, they'll let you know. So if a character had green eyes, you know, back in Deja Dead, and she comes along again, she better still have green eyes. So we did. We spent endless hours checking all the minutia that I had created way back when. And do you still get, because um, it is that, as you suggest there, that problem, an issue that readers often know more about the stories than the writers. Um, now, have you had people writing in saying that's, in a published book, that's wrong, that can't have happened, or that doesn't match. Occasionally, I've had, um, I remember very early on, Tempe and Ryan were eating, and one of them, and I don't remember which one it was, said, I don't like goat cheese. Why don't you like goat cheese? Do you know what goats eat? I got a letter from a goat farmer, three pages, single spaced, explaining to me exactly what goats eat and how very clean they are. So I do get feedback. I do um, through through the website or through my editors or however. And the, uh, one of the things that fascinates readers, I think, certainly does me in these books, is the amount of stuff that she knows and therefore you presumably know. So I enjoyed very much early on with the eye. Someone says, could it be a cow's eye? And she knows it can't be because of the right, colour. Yeah. And then she can work out, it's astonishing, she can work out gender, she can, from looking at bones. Um, you, you know all that stuff. I did not know about the cow's eye. I did have to research how you can tell the difference. A cow's eye has this little iridescent area in it. I had to research that, but bones, yeah, I know about, I know about the bones. <laughs> but also the science moves on though, doesn't it? So you, uh, you actually, again, you mentioned that in the acknowledgements, um, you have to keep up to date, although you're not practicing now, with what's happened. I do, and I was always lucky, I still have colleagues that I could pick up the phone if I need to know about, you know, fire and arson, or hair and fiber, or 
mitochondrial DNA and cat hair or whatever it happens to be. Most specialties, one of the funny things that happened when I was writing, oh, which one, Bones to Ashes, I think, I needed to write some, it's about the, the Acadians in the maritime provinces of Canada, and I needed to write some poetry and then do a linguistic breakdown. And I didn't know a forensic linguist. So, so I got online and I googled forensic linguistics, and the same name kept coming up at Hofstra University in New York City. So I just sent him an email cold, Rob Leonard, sent him an email cold, would you help me with some of this linguistic analysis? <laughs> so he probably Googled me and said, you know, who the hell is Kathy Rikes? And uh, he agreed to help me out. Anyway, we're well along in this process of writing this poetry, and I mentioned it to a friend, and she said, you mean the Rob Leonard? I said, what, what are you talking about? Turns out Rob Leonard, PhD in linguistic Forensic Linguistic was one of the founding members of Shanana. And I don't know if you remember Shanana. I'm sure the younger people out there are going, what's Shanana? Anyway, it was, so I went on the internet and I found a picture of Shanana playing at Woodstock. And I sent it to him and I said, Rob, is that you in the leather pants? And he answered immediately and he said they were gold lame. <laughs> and maybe five minutes later I got another email saying, I loved those pants. <laughs> so that was, that was fun. Another um, line that I was struck by in Deja Dead when I reread it is that um, Tempe says very early on, uh, when she's doing the first um, autopsy in the series, she says, I filed the outrage in another place and forced myself to concentrate. Now that interested me because I know uh, one of my children is a doctor and I know that they're taught clinical distance and not to get involved. And I assume you, you couldn't get as emotionally involved as she sometimes does. That is correct. And you really shouldn't. Um, you have to remain objective and detached, otherwise you're not going to be any good to the victim that you're trying to identify or determine a cause of death or whatever. So you really do have to maintain. It's harder with some cases than others. Child homicide cases, yes. for example, would be very difficult. But, but this is my other um, big theory, if it's true, um, is that what you've done is you've filed the outrage and the emotion in the fiction. Um, I'm often asked, is it a way of, uh, you know, is it a cathartic thing to be able, because with the TV show and with the books, every time the bad guy or girl gets caught, the villain does, with one exception, there's one book where the villain does get away in the series. But um, yeah, it's satisfying that you resolve everything in fiction, which is not true in real life. Mm. And also, in the nature of fiction, it would be very hard to have um, an investigator of any kind who is clinically distanced throughout. I and mean, we had, you know, there are many cases in TV. We had a TV detective here, and critics would say, what's amazing is she cares so much about every um, uh, victim. And uh, detectives would write in and say, but that's why it's wrong, because you can't. But in fiction, right. you have to, to some degree. Yeah, and the other thing that's not true in real life, and it is in the books and in the TV show, is she gets a lot more involved in the investigative end of it. She works with the detective, she goes off interviewing witnesses. I, I don't do that. I'll work with the detective 
maybe at the crime scene, maybe recovering the body, and then he'll come to my lab and I'll give him reports, but I don't go out doing the gumshoe kind of thing that she does here and, and on the show. But given the, you mentioned there some things you've seen in child homicide and so on, um, it does happen to people in your profession, uh, PTSD, burnout, uh, flashbacks, terrible dreams and all that. Did you ever come close to that? The only thing, yeah, actually after 9-11, I worked helping yeah. to cover victims at the Twin Towers in New York, and I thought, oh, not me, you know, because they brief you and they debrief you out when you, when you leave, and I thought, not me, I'm not going to have trouble sleeping or anything, but yeah, mm. yeah, I did a little bit. Interesting. And again, something that um, Tempest says uh, in this book, she says that um, some people, uh, she said basically it, um, it divides the world between those who mm -hmm. can't get enough of this stuff and people who don't want any of it. Now that obviously is a reflection. I mean, the number of fans, readers you have and books you've sold, there are a lot of people who want it. But that is, there are people who just don't want to know. And that's true. And when you go to a dinner party, the hostess may take me aside and say, look, we're not going to talk about your work. <laughs> you know, some people really are too sensitive. They don't like the hardcore, gritty, thriller-type literature. But the number of people who do want to know, I mean, they're all, you know, the most common theory is that because we've, to a large extent, hidden death um, in our societies, um, that that does it's the closest people come to contemplating uh, what death really is. Well, and I think that's part of the uh, attraction of murder mysteries and thrillers, and people have been reading them for you know, hundreds of years, is most people don't have to interact with that world, and yet it's a vicarious peek into the morgue or the autopsy room or the crime scene. And do you become, you, you must to some degree become desensitized to it, the more of it or is that true? The more of it you do, not the writing, the professional work, the not easier it gets, but it becomes routine. Well, you just have to develop whatever tricks you use or to, to be able to leave your work at the lab at the end of the day. Because if you take it home with you, you know, you're not going to do yourself any good or your, your work any good. There's a lot of talk, as you know, about... Um, sensitivities now towards fiction and sensitivity reading and people pushing back. There's an interesting moment to me in Cole, Cole Burns when Tempe does, which is clearly a routine report that she, um, from the skull, she says Caucasian, and then in one of the conversations she has with us, um, she says, um, yeah, I know, I know, it's a very simplistic view of race, but this is what we do. Um, but I was interested you you felt you wanted to cross that. That was kind of for my colleagues because there's a big issue now in forensic anthropology with a certain subset of younger forensic anthropologists do not want to mention racial background, they do not men want to mention ancestry, they, they want to talk in terms of population, breeding populations, or and, and if you talk to a cop about, you know, a, breeding populations parameter, he or she's going to look at you like, what? Just tell me, socially, how would this person have been recognized? So I didn't want to go into that whole argument, but I did sort of put that apologetic in there for my colleagues. Well, it fascinated me because um, 
you, uh, temperance of you, your dealing and your colleagues, you're dealing at a very deep level with identity and gender, which, uh, as you know, hugely contested issues now. You can, you know, perfectly reasonably choose to be um, non-binary in real life. But if you're ever, ever on a walk table, you can't be non-binary. That is correct. Biologically, your bones are going to reflect your birth gender. Mm. Birth uh, sex, I guess, not gender. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But that was one of the fascinating things, that she can um, tell the uh, sex or, um, yeah, she can tell it from the bones. So our bones give us away. In that yeah, sense. and that's one of the questions I'm often asked. Um, and the other is manner or cause of death. You know, what happened to this person? Was there, was there blunt instrument trauma, sharp instrument trauma? You know, what, what, what can we say about why they're dead? The... Tapping you, you've even more so than doctors. You, you, I mean, you've seen the finality of death, the horror of death in many cases. Um, in my experience, that leads some medical professionals to say, "There's nothing after this. Um, we, are, you know, we're just worm food, essentially, humans." And then others say, um, "The body is a frame for a soul or a spirit, and the body goes." Um, I mean, it's you know. It's private, so you can say as much as little as you want. But in terms of your own spiritual reflection, because that must be that must come up in your um, head. Oh, that's a hard one. It's private. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but as I say, it's not it's not true that all um, doctors are all forensic anthropologists or atheists. I mean, there are two possibilities. Oh no, no, you have a full spectrum. Yeah. Full spectrum. Um, John Connolly, when he was sitting on this stage in that chair this afternoon um, about his 21st Charlie Parker novel he said he doesn't know when the series will end but he knows how it will end uh, would that be true of you? No, I don't know when it will end and I don't know how it will end but the cat will still be alive, the cat is now <laughs> the birdie will still be there and you can't, you clearly couldn't have known um, 25 years ago that it was going to be such a success and there would be so many books. Um, how much sense of the character and her possibilities beyond this book did you have when you wrote it? You know, I, I wrote as a completely unknown author, an academic. Um, I'd never written fiction. Well, maybe my resume, but other than that, I, I hadn't fiction. So, you know, I, I just wanted to get, hopefully someone would like it and publish it and somebody would then buy it and read it and like it. Every now and then it went through my head, oh, it's going to be a series and it'll be a TV show and, and, and then you tell yourself, come on, get real, you know, maybe, maybe somebody will publish the book. So I didn't really anticipate, I wrote the character hoping it would be a series, but I didn't really anticipate it. And many writers from the stage have written long series have said that if they'd known when they were writing the first book that they were going to write 20, 25, they'd have made different decisions. They'd have given the person more um, children or fewer parents or whatever. Um, do you... Um, well, no, just in terms of the number of characters. Okay, yeah, okay. You know, when, the question of whether a character's parents are alive or dead is a thing. For, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I just wondered that. Is, is there anything in the first book you felt you wrote yourself into a corner? Yeah, um, I wanted her to have flaws, to be approachable and not be perfect. So I made her a recovering alcoholic. And I don't 
don't go there very often. I, I just allude to this very colorful period in her past with alcohol. But she's a non-drinker. So, you know, I kind of regret that because it would give me opportunities for her to, I don't know, fall off the wagon or mm. whatever. So. But you, well, you could still do that, could you? Could you? I, she did. She did yeah. in one book. She did yeah. fall off the wagon. I forget why. But, I mean, she could have a nice glass of wine at night or something, but no. And one of the ways you've um, uh, deepened that much of the story is through her daughter who has served in the army and who may, may have PTSD I and mean, it certainly has been badly affected by it. So, which I found very satisfying in Cuckold, but you've got two people dealing with uh, horrible experiences, I mean obviously more directly in the case of a soldier, but in different ways. So they, they illuminate each other in that way. Yeah, I wanted to shine some light on that. Katie's back. She did two deployments to the Middle East. She's back, and she's very um, unpredictable. Sometimes she's good old Katie. She's warm, and she's friendly, and she's laughing. And then sometimes she's very prickly and brittle. And Tempe does come to realize that she's probably suffering from PTSD. And I think a lot of our troops have that issue. And uh, that's why mm. I wanted to bring that out. But also, which again is brought out, which is always a horror every time you read this American statistic, which is the death rate, not in Vietnam, but um, back in America after Vietnam, the number of Vietnam veterans who had taken their own lives. Right. It's an extraordinary statistic. Right. right. So I, again, I wanted to bring that out through the, the, the Katie character, the, the problem of homelessness and PTSD. And a lot of the veterans are suffering from those. And John Connolly this afternoon, he said that because it can safely be said that America is more um, divided than uh, hmm. it probably ever has been um, recently, certainly since the 60s, um, that he gets uh, emails from people saying, I don't care what you think about President Trump, I don't care what you think about America. Um, do you, I mean, they're less obviously, the obviously political books, but is it harder to write in what are called the culture wars? I don't really get political at all in the book, so I just ignore that. Um, another issue authors are having to face right now is what do you do about the pandemic? Mm -hmm. Do you ignore it? Do you set your story in a post-pandemic era? Do you bring the pandemic in as, you know, and I've chosen to just give it, uh, to recognize it, but in a very passing way. Oh, well, no, I, I love that, because um, Tempe reflects that everyone has to wear a mask now, whereas previously she used to uh, be singled out for wearing one. Yeah, yeah. And that everyone knows now what it's like. To and ironically, the book before this is called The Bone Code, mm -hmm. and it's, um, there is an epidemic, pandemic, hotspot, flare-up situation of a Captocytophagia, I don't know if you know what that is. It's kind of a flesh-eating disease. And I wrote that, you know, t the book takes a year to write and a year in production. So I wrote that book like four years ago before the, you know, COVID ever, ever appeared. Which is one of the fascinating things about fiction because um, th there are a couple of such books where that has happened, but it's because um, much more in medical circles than political circles, people have been saying for quite a time it was going to happen something like COVID. Yeah. So you, yeah. yeah. I'm always looking for something that's going to be of interest down the road, two years, because mm -hmm. as I said, it takes a year to write it, a year in production. So what is it that's going to be on people's minds in the future? 
ironically, Fatal Voyage, which is number four, I think, was released, and that one's about a commercial airline disaster and how it forensic anthropologists work in recovery in situations of mass fatalities. And that was released in August of 2001. One month later, I was deployed to the Twin Towers to do exactly what I'd been writing about two years previously. Wow. Yeah. And uh, we're about to open up to the audience um, for questions. But another issue that you know arises, and it frequently has this weekend here, is um, is female victims um, in crime fiction now you. I mean, she deals with men, women, and children at various times. But um, is that something you are conscious of, that there is, there's a trope of the vulnerable young woman victim? Yeah, and I don't want to use that in every single book. I've had uh, the victims be elderly people. I've had it be, the one I'm writing now, it's going to be young male tourists in the Turks and Caicos Islands. I mean, I like to vary the, or have no category. Like, these are all over the map. These mm. are seemingly unrelated. Mm. Um, if you could bring the lights up and we'll start um, taking some questions. We can see if they've snuck out. Yeah, <laughs> that might be. We've got two microphones out there which will move um, around the audience. There's quite um, uh, a lot of noise on the roof from the rain, but um, we should be fine. Yeah, who'd like to ask the first question? There's going to be a quiz on all of this. <laughs> Do you have any questions? Sorry, <coughs> over here. Um, the, the Bones TV series um, was probably the best cross-generational event for my family, my kids, myself, everyone loved it. But when Temperance began that journey from amiable sociopath to more vulnerable through Seely and then Max. What, what we liked as a family was her responses in those early days when there was, the, you know, it was almost a bit like Sherlock Holmes, so um, disconnected from the social world in her responses. We loved that as a family. Maybe that says something about us, but was that... <laughs> Was there uh, someone or something that triggered that? Because it's, it, it, that was the, the motor that drove the early series for me and for my kids as well. That was kind of a combination of Hart Hansen, our showrunner, and he also wrote the pilot, and Emily. I, I, Emily Deschanel, who played, uh, played Temperance Brennan, and she's incredibly socially awkward at the beginning and, and very rigid and very stiff and, and just not polished at all, um, but I think if you binged all 12 seasons and watched what Emily did with that character as that character evolved, um, it, it's really amazing what she did with the part. We loved the way it happened. Um, we just, thank you. as she became more human, we, we sort of felt a bit nostalgic for the old Emily as well. Or the yeah, old yeah, well. and that's what we want. We wanted to create characters that people cared about and got engaged with and not just a police procedural. Thank you. And various um, series that have ended on one network, they're now being brought back, particularly by Netflix. Is there any chance of Bones being resurrected? I don't think, well, we're still on air. We're everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, 
But no, because everyone's moved on. David and David Boreanis is doing SEAL Team, and uh, Emily's doing something else. So now we could possibly do a reunion show, and that would be a lot of fun. And I think they'd be up for that, as would I. I had a great time. I am not one of these people who's going to say you took my art and you ruined it. I had a great experience with uh, with Bones, both as a writer and as a producer, and. Uh, we just had a terrific team. Some writers, though, when it happens, the TV series, they suffer visual interference because how they see the characters are affected by the TV. Did, did you have that? Well, no. The t I think of TV Tempe and Book Tempe because yeah. they're quite yeah. different. Yeah. Yeah. And TV Tempe is in Washington, D.C. She's younger. She's taller. You know, she, whereas Book Tempe is in the Carolinas and in Quebec. Um, so, and I like that when I sit down to write a Temperance Brennan book, I don't have to worry about what TV Tempe. A lot of people just thought of it as an earlier version of, of Tempe, an earlier point in her career and in her life. Which it could be. Could be, yeah. sure. Except for the taller thing. <laughs> yeah, that's fun, uh, yeah. Um, yes, please, yes. Has someone got a microphone? Hello. Um, yeah. Sorry, I'm here. There you are. Hi. Okay. Um, you mentioned earlier it was uh, nice when obviously you write a case, you can tie it up at the end and get a resolution, and that's obviously unlike real life a lot of the time. Have there been any particular cases that you've worked on in real life that you didn't get a resolution and you've created a resolution in, in a book? Uh, no. I have cases that are not resolved yet. Um, there's a case of a little skeleton, probably a little boy about six years old, that was found on the New Brunswick-Quebec uh, border, thrown over the side of a road. And I got that case to my lab, I think, in 1998. He's yet to be identified. But I used that uh, in, a, uh, in a book. I think Bones to Ashes is the one that was in. And as a result of that, I was touring out there in, in the French uh, language areas of Maritime Canada, and the news reported on it, and a family called me and said, we think that's our brother who was killed by a car back in 1963. So we're trying, we may eventually get him identified because of using that in the book. So that'll be very satisfying. Extraordinary, and, and how would you, um how would you uh, investigate that to try and prove that DNA. DNA. DNA, right. yeah, it didn't exist back then. Yeah, of course, yeah. Well, it existed, but we just didn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on, the, um, on the question of the French language areas, um, when the books translated into French, what did they do with your punning title? I'm not sure at all what, how they handled that. Yeah. Um, I remember when the book came out, when Deja Dead came out at the university, thinking, because if you if you write a if you write a novel in an English department, you're a hero. But if you write a novel in a science department, you're a little suspect. <laughs> so I didn't really tell them I was writing it. And when I went in, I remember that year for the <laughs> you have what's called your academic review. Every professor is reviewed for professional, which means publication, um, teaching, and public service. So I remember having my review with the committee that year, and they said, of course, the novel will not count. <laughs> but when I went to the lab, uh, which was all in French, so I had another year of you know, lag time before it came out, everybody would drop by my lab and say, so, do you have any 
questions about DNA or <laughs> so they were thrilled. But the academics, yeah, less so. And have have you read them in French or not? Have I written in French? No, have you read the books in the French translation? I, you know, I skim them, but I don't. I haven't read the whole book mm. in French. Yeah, probably should do that. Yeah. Um, any? Yes, please. Um, we've got two hands on this aisle, so we'll take those two. Hi, Kathy. Hi. How did you, in the TV series, bring in ZZ Top as Angie's dad? You gotta love ZZ Top. We had a lot of celebs come in and do part-time gigs. Uh, Ryan O'Neill and ZZ Top and Penny Marshall. Anyway, um, I'm not sure. That was always done through the showrunner and through the production company. But he was on set several times when I was there. He used to wear a, a church key, do you call it that here? A, a, a bottle opener that opens beer bottles. Oh, right. On a yeah. lanyard around his neck. And I never really asked him why he wore that <laughs> around his neck, but he was terrific. He was Angela's father. No, well, a bottle yeah. opener, so they're called a church key. It's called a church key. Wow. Yeah, so you can yeah. open your beer. Yeah. Because well, it looks like one of those old church, big church keys, presumably. We see. Yeah. I think it's just because it's, you know, a God-given gift to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, there was someone just beat there. Yeah. Thank you. Hi. I wanted to ask you about um, the concept of fan service. We've, uh, I'm sure a lot of people here read a lot of series of books, and sometimes um, things, TV shows, films that have run for a long time can be criticised when they rehash old ideas and I've, I've seen criticism of some things where they say oh, we just they just took what we liked from the last one and did that again which seems like a logical thing to do I would imagine but when you sit down to write a new uh, book are you very aware of the audience you've built over these years and the risk of maybe doing something with the character that they might not respond well to or is that something you don't really think about? I try to find an original idea for each of the books. I try to, uh, I choose my setting, I choose, you know, what arena. That's what we used to call it in the writer's room. Each episode we would visit a different world or a different arena. And let me tell you, after 246 episodes, it's hard to find something new. And each of the shows would open with a, you know, compromised set of human remains. And we'd say, well, let's Let's put it in a chocolate bar. Oh no, we did that in season two. Let's put it in a vat of red wine. Oh no, we did that in season four. So it's the same thing with the books. It's trying to find an original idea, an idea that will be of interest to people two years down the road. You don't want to, well this one, I intentionally repeated some things because that was the theme of the book. But you do try to come up with something new and original. It's a formula. You know, somebody gets killed and then somebody gets caught. That's what thrillers are. Um, did, that, that was really rambly. Did that answer your question at all? No, that does not. That raises some interesting questions because there are those 246 TV plots. Yeah. Did you ever find yourself, and you had to stop yourself accidentally taking any of those positions? Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it's different when you're writing for TV versus when you're writing for a book. For one thing, um, for one thing, a screenplay boils down to dialogue. You don't have to describe anything because the viewer sees it. Whereas, as you say, my books tend to be quite descriptive. The other thing is, um, 
you have a lot of bosses. When I write a book, I, I give them maybe the first six, eight, ten chapters and a title, and then I finish it and turn it in, and they tell me it's splendid, and they make a few suggestions, and on we go. With TV, first you, you go into the writer's room, and you do what's called breaking the story. And you do that collectively. You do it together with all the staff writers. We had seven full-time staff writers. And there would be this terrifyingly empty board um, for our show divided into six acts. And by the end of the week, you will have together brainstormed, and you'd have your A story and your B story and your C story. Then you pitch it to the showrunner. When he approves it, then you get sent to outline, and you write a very detailed outline, then you pitch it, and when that gets approved, you finally get sent to script, you write the script, you turn it in, and they change everything. <laughs> Here, here's a good example, and that could be for reasons you don't, you don't know, budgetary reasons, or a uh, particular actor's not available. Here, here's a good example, I wrote an episode called The Dude in the Dam. My daughter and I wrote it together. And our opening scene was a guy screaming along in an ATV. He goes airborne, he comes crashing down in this puddle of slime. Because I read that leopard slugs put out slime, because they're slugs, it's what slugs do. But if you add water to it, it increases in volume by 99%. Awesome. Lake of slime. So kid come, that got changed to two kids walking through the woods and they see a body in a beaver dam. <laughs> so what we didn't know is there were only three working beavers in LA and they were all booked. <laughs> so we're getting down to where we're filming the episode and we're on location and they've dug this gully and they built the deep beaver dam and you know, we. Anyway, there was a cancellation. We got a beaver. I don't know if there was a, a contract dispute or whatever. Anyway, we got a beaver. So we were told that when the, when the wrangler opened the cape, anytime you have animals on a set, you have to have a wrangler. So we had a beaver wrangler and a slug wrangler. So we were told that when wrangler opens the cage, this beaver would bolt, that she was a bolter. So we're all standing around, cue the water, cue the cameras, open the cage. Turns out it was a very elderly beaver, <laughs> and she just sat there. So when, when the scene opens, the episode opens, it's a tight close-up on the beaver, and then they pan back. She's giving, giving a pretty good uh, performance. We thought she might get a nod for, you know, best performance That's by supporting a small yeah. furry mammal or whatever. Anyway, the only reason for that is we're all standing around bribing her with carrots and lettuce and <laughs> But I digress, sorry. No, but because the TV and book writing processes are, are so different, did, did the experience of the writer's room, did it change your novelistic process at all? Were you doing A stories, B stories, beats? I, the, the structure was similar, because I do main, have the main story, which is your crime. Mm and then your B story, which is something going on in the lives of your characters, and then a C story could be another subsidiary, or even an arcing story that goes from episode to episode or book to book. So that structure was, was very similar. It's just you cut out everything that's descriptive. And the weird thing about TV, which um, 
they often don't think enough about is, as you say, the availability of actors and so mm -hmm. on. There was a series here where someone fell downstairs and was in a coma. And when I asked the showrunner, they said, oh, they got a Netflix series, so we didn't have them for, um, uh, for this many episodes. And a lot of it is very practical in that way, TV. Hard to get around in a coma, though. Well, they would come out of it. Oh. Yeah. Well, the reason they changed it to the fever was they didn't have to, it was budgeted, they didn't have to pay for an ATV to crash, they didn't have to have a medic, uh, you know, on site. Um, so it was... Yeah. Um, yes, questions. So there's another... Um, hi, you mentioned writing with your daughter there, you write with your son as well and um, I love the short story with Lee Child. How do you find collaborating versus being a solo writer and is there anyone that you would like to collaborate with? <laughs> well, writing with Lee Child was absolutely delightful. We just worked really well together. We did it largely at a distance. He would do. It's a book called Matchup. And the theory, the theme was that a male protagonist and writer would pair up with a female protagonist and writer. So we brought Jack Reacher together with Temperance Brennan. And it just, it, it was really a great experience. Um, writing with my daughter, writing screenplays, that worked out. Um, she's a lawyer. My son is a lawyer. He's a litigator. So when he and I wrote the viral series, he hated being a lawyer. So he came to me and he said, why don't we write a young adult series so that he could get out of being a lawyer? Um, and I said, yeah, okay, we can do that. So we did six books. So obviously we worked it out. We split it up. He, it's about Temperance Brennan's 14-year-old great niece, Tori Brennan, and her friends. Um, so he was better at some things. Uh, and the books are just as complex as my adult books. They're big. Kids want these big, honking books. They want their money's worth. So um, the stories are just as complicated and multi-leveled. What's different is the dialogue, because 14, 15-year-old kids don't talk like, you know, skinny Slidell and 50-year-old homicide detectives. And their social concerns, obviously, are different. So he was better at those things. I was better at plotting and, and the science. So we just, our editorial meetings could appear occasionally be um, <laughs> challenging, but we did six books together, so we worked it out. And has he got out of being a lawyer? Did it, did it work? It did work, and then he dumped me. <laughs> he, then he wrote a three-book series called Genesis, no wait, Nemesis, Genesis, Chrysalis, and then a two or three book middle grade series called The Dark D. And now he's doing, what's he got coming out? Something to do with, for DC, uh, a graphic novel, a Superman graphic novel, and something anyway. So he's on his own. He's writing on his own. Um, yes, over there. We've got someone. Hi. Can I, can I ask, uh, without giving the next book away, well, I need to know that Bertie will still be around. Bertie? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, Bertie will be around forever. Um, you're, you're allowed to kill off characters. I don't know the cat. Oh, no, please don't. The cat. Don't kill the cat. Then you said you, you said the cat. However, then the cat will be alive. The cat is probably now about fifty. <laughs> <laughs> the other characters aren't aging in real time. Mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah. Um, how, sorry. How about uh, Andy? He's around. He's, um, around. he's now in private practice with uh, Skinny. Oh, and because Andrew Ryan is bilingual, 
and skinny is barely lingual fluent in English. So during this book, uh, Ryan is off on a case in the Caribbean. So he's not around a whole lot. So Slice the Dale will still be around as well. Oh, Skinny. Yeah, I think Skinny's my favorite character mm -hmm. in the Me whole too. series. Me too. Thank you. Yeah. Well, no, other than Andy. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've got time for a couple more. But yes, there's a hand raised. Two hands. So we'll try and take these two. I think third row and fifth, in whatever order. And then if we can get that forward to, I can see a pink Oh, there, yeah. Okay. Um, you said about the pizza restaurant, and I think Boney Pepperoni is a yes, great yes. title. Thank you. We I'll were tell my daughter. <laughs> we were in a, a pizza restaurant in New Orleans a couple of years ago, and there were huge pizzas. We finished the middle of them, but we left around the outside, and the waitress came and said, You still working on them bones? <laughs> so. Are you still working on that bone shit? Well, that we, we do say, are, are you still working on it? Are y'all still working on it? We say back home. But um, that book was based on an actual case. There was a, that was kind of a funny story too. Uh, there was an old building in Montreal, and in that building was a pizza by the slice partner, a parlor. So the building was owned by a man named Saeed, and the pizza by the slice was run by a man named Jobert. And they had trouble with the toilet, so they called a plumber. So the plumber's name was Wong. So Mr. Wong comes over. He goes down in the basement. No, he goes into the, into the toilet, but then he finds his trap door. And he goes down in the basement, figure out what's wrong with the toilet, I guess. And um, he finds a bone. So he brings it upstairs, and it's a human femur. It's a big bone. It's a thigh bone. So Saeed and Jobert and Wong are looking. They go to the library, and they get an artist's illustrated an, an atlas of human anatomy. And they're looking up this bone, and they decide, yep, that's a human bone. So they called the police. The police called the coroner. The coroner called me, and I went into the pizza parlor basement, and it turned out it was three people down there. So the question in that was how long have they been down there? You know, are they, was the building built over an old cemetery? Were they down there, you know, a hundred years ago? Were they down there a thousand years? Or are they modern enough to be... Or which pizza they ordered, I <laughs> They don't have the bony pepperoni. <laughs> anyway, I Amazing. digress again. So. Um, yes, so can we pass the microphone forward? Um, obviously, you've written um, a lot of books, um, uh, but I wonder about the places that the books take place. Do you have to do a lot of research, or are they all based on your own experience of the places that you've been to? Yeah, I won't write about a place I haven't been, but if I've gone, then my character's going to go. One of the books was based on spider bones, was based on work I did for the U.S. Military Central ID Lab in Hawaii. So that's where she goes in that book. Um, Bones of the Lost are based on, I went about five years ago to Afghanistan on a USO tour to thank our troops for their service. So the next book, Tempe goes to Afghanistan. So any Israel, the eighth book is based on it, Crossbones, she's in Israel. I went over specifically and spent two weeks with an archaeologist, you know, 
learning about Israel and seeing the setting. So yes, anything that's in the books, I will have gone there. So can people go to Harrogate then? <laughs> she just might. Yeah. She just might. <laughs> yeah. um, we've got room for time for one more if anyone wants to. Um, have you been tempted to start another adult series with a different character? Um, I've thought about it, maybe. Um, in the past, when I've done other, they really just want temperance. So, yeah, maybe. Who knows? Thank you very much. Um, Thank you. Great audience. Yeah. Kathy Bright will be signing copies of her books um, in the bookshop. Uh, thank you to all of you, and thank you very much to Kathy Bright. Thank you for listening to HIF Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.